Hey everybody, and welcome back to BRIM, a global community at the intersection of climate innovation and social justice. This is season two, episode seven, and today we are hearing from Daniel Collins Wildman, an old friend I met back in church when we were very young, um, but today we have to call him Dr. Collins Wildman because he has his PhD in chemistry and is working on battery technology and renewable energy at the Lawrence Berkeley National Lab. So excited to share our conversation today because he's also a part of BRIM's Global Working Group, a global team that's starting to build projects together across the world. We talk about microgrids, energy, growing up in New York City, and I hope you enjoy. Welcome back, everybody. Um, this is Thomas, and today I have a an honor to be with an old friend, um, Daniel Collins Wildman. Um, he and I met back in church. What that must have been like, literally when we were born. Um, but <laughs> we've known it's been a while. It's been a while. We've known each other for a long time, but really excited to have have you here today, Daniel. Thanks for for joining. Yeah, no, I'm I'm excited to do this. I'm excited to talk about microgrids, to talk about energy, yeah, and you know whatever whatever questions and things you want to talk about. <laughs> cool. Well, um, I already gave away how we met, but Daniel and I met growing up uh, in New York City on uh, the Upper West Side, which is where I spent most of my time growing up as uh, as a kid. But um, we met at church. St. Paul and St. Andrew, shout out to SPSA on 86th Street. Um, but since then, you know, Daniel and I have, you know, we've been friends for a long time, clearly, but um, have also sort of come back and crossed paths more recently um, as we've been sort of working on on BRIM together. And uh, it's been a, a fun meandering and connection of paths. But um you know, if this makes sense to you, Daniel, I, I thought we could start about growing up as as city kids. And it's a unique experience for sure. But I also think it's a unique start to a journey into the climate space, right? Because, you know, anyway, I'll let you speak about your experience there. But how did you like growing up in the city? And um, what kind of stuff do you think it's it's made you think about as you're now working on stuff in, in the energy world? Yeah, um, I think growing up in New York, it felt to me like a unique experience um, being from the U.S. as an American. I think I didn't necessarily know that as a kid. You know, when you're when you're born into an environment, it is what it is and that's all you know. But when I went to college, I definitely felt like the rest of the country is a little different than what I had experienced. And I think that's in large part just because there's so much public transit and so many people kind of crammed together in a small space. Like for me, not having a car was normal. Um, and not my dad doesn't know how to drive. He doesn't have a license. And I also thought that was normal. So <laughs> yeah, 
I, you know, I quickly realized visiting other places that that was not not the norm for most of the U.S. Yeah. When did you get your license? That's something I always ask city kids when they got their license. I think it tells you a lot. Um, so I think I got my license when I was 21. I got my learner's permit when I was 19. So there's kind of a, a long learning period there. <laughs> nice. I think I had a similar experience, honestly. I don't know if I've told you this before, but I actually got into an accident on my way to my driving test. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> so I thought that that might have meant that I needed some more time. Um, <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, did you pass the test or did you? <laughs> I, I decided not to go that day. You know, I decided <laughs> so to good. for a little bit at least, but yeah, it's definitely a unique experience. And I know it also sort of pushed you to to think about how to get outside the city as well as you were developing your relationship with nature. And even back from church, I always remember you as a, as a climber and someone who loved being outside and going on adventures. So um, yeah, tell me a little bit about that, that transition and that evolution. Yeah. um, So I, I feel like I'm incredibly lucky that from a very young age, my parents really encouraged my sister and I to get outside. Um, and so, yeah, like, I think I was an infant even when we went camping in Vermont, which, you know, now seeing small children and thinking about doing that potentially as a parent is terrifying. Um, so kudos to my parents for doing that, but it really, it gave me an opportunity to be in nature and, and sort of have that juxtaposed to living in the city where there's, there's not as much green space and the green space that there is still feels like it's very cultivated um, and it's very manicured. Mm -hmm. So I think that wilderness, there was sort of a calling for me to want to experience more of that. Um, And then as I got older, when I realized the impact that humans were having, not just locally on my, the community that I was there for, but that it was an impact that was affecting all parts of the globe that that really was terrifying to me and also a call to action that I wanted to have my career focus on doing something that would help to sort of mitigate those changes. Yeah. And there, there are so many ways to think about how you can be involved in affecting change, right? Some people go down sort of the, the sociology or anthropology route. That's sort of what my dad did. Um, you can go down sort of the activist route, um, starting your own organizations. Um, you can also think about things in more of a, a technical sense and a scientific sense, which is where your brain went, right? So I, I'd love to hear about your sort of your journey. Um, you got your PhD in chemical engineering, right, at Emory. Sure. It was actually uh, in, in chemistry. Um, chemistry, okay. Now I'm technically a chemical engineer, so yeah. <laughs> Cool. So t- tell me about sort of the choice to go that route. And it's a unique one and um, a unique skill set to build, but curious what, what that was like for you um, going down to Atlanta and Emory. And, you know, maybe that can dovetail into telling us a little bit about, you know, where you're at right now and some of the stuff you're working on. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think when I got out of college, I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. Um, I finished my undergrad in chemistry and I was looking for options. Um, and I found an internship at uh, city college and it was an unpaid internship and I was working 
with rocks. I was doing uh, geology related stuff and trying to look at what types of minerals were growing, uh, or not growing, but were formed in the Palisades actually. But while I was there, the, my supervisor was working at the Energy Institute, um, which is also part of CCNY. And there, that was where I got my first exposure to batteries. Um, and so I was able to transition from this unpaid internship into a paid position at the Energy Institute, um, working on uh, zinc manganese batteries. And the, the goal for that was to do stationary energy storage. Um, and so I guess maybe uh, if, if I'll just go ahead and <laughs> sort of introduce this concept here. Of, sure. Um, I, I remember the first couple of times we talked about, <laughs> especially sort of the, the raw material. Um, I don't even know how to describe it, but for me, it went so over my head clearly that um, it's so cool they are working on this stuff. But yeah, you go do your thing. Okay. Yeah. So um, just zinc manganese batteries are the ones that are used in um, like your everyday disposable batteries, but the Energy Institute wanted to find a way to use these cheap materials and make them rechargeable. And the, the target was to have batteries that could be used to take the energy from renewable sources like wind and solar. And then when you don't have access to those renewables, like for example, when the sun goes down at night, you still need to power things. And so being able to have energy stored at batteries, but batteries that are really cheap was what they wanted. And so I really, it was an amazing experience for me to get to work there, um, you know, so shortly after undergrad. Um, but also it kind of informed what I wanted to do moving forward. And it was while I was there that I decided, you know, I don't necessarily want to stay just as like an undergrad master's level I want to pursue a PhD because I want to be able to be a part of the decision-making process for the direction of research. And so that was when I really decided that I wanted to go to Emory and get my PhD in chemistry. Um, and yeah, so. Cool. Well, in our, in our former lives, um, I was spending a little time working in Atlanta and you were down at Emory. That's right, I remember yeah. We had a chance to meet up a few times with Jen um, yeah. and her partner and you know, I was so impressed with some of the stuff you were working on. And for me, you know, without a technical skill set or background, it was such a unique and fun experience getting to learn about that side of the equation from you, um, because it all sort of plays in together when you think about how do you go about solving the climate crisis. There's so many different pieces that need to be fit together. Um, and the scientific side, the technology side is a big part of that. So, um, you went from Emory out West, right? You deserted us on the East coast and you went out, <laughs> by, um, to the Lawrence Berkeley national lab. Hopefully I got that right. Yep. yep. Um, and you're working on battery technology out there. What's going yeah. on? Yeah. So I, I kind of, during my PhD, I worked on water oxidation and, and solar fuels, which is using sunlight to convert water into hydrogen and oxygen. And that was, that was some of what I did. I also did some other sort of decontamination based work. But when I, when I left, I felt like I didn't really want to stay in academia. I wanted to kind of bend more towards applied science. And I felt like, like a good place to go that I felt like was a safe bet um, for the future was to work on batteries because I thought 
Batteries are going to be important now, but they're also, even if batteries aren't necessarily the main sort of technology vehicle that allows renewables to reach a higher penetration level. And by that, I mean just a larger percentage and energy share of where we get our energy from coming from renewable sources as opposed to fossil fuels. Um, but like even if batteries didn't do that, batteries were going to be important for electric vehicles, for just uh, consumer electronics, batteries are going to be around. So I decided that I wanted to try and transition back to working on batteries. And I was able to get a postdoctoral fellowship at Lawrence Berkeley National Lab. And since then, so my first bit of time, I was actually working again with zinc. Um, again, sort of similarly on stationary energy storage, at this time, just sort of using a, a different battery design. But again, the, the driver was the same, that we were looking for ways to lower the cost of the battery so that it would be easier to get these things to the market and actually, you know, use batteries yeah. in society. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's, I remember when we were just starting to talk about this, you know, people who are involved in the climate space, you know, they hear about batteries all the time. But for me, like I didn't have any real world concept of like, where did they, act, where do batteries actually fit in to the technology strategy? Right. So yeah. you started talking to me a lot about some things you just mentioned, like electric vehicles, right? Every EV needs batteries to store the energy that is being used. Um, you know, one of the other places that it's always needed is, you know, in solar photovoltaic panels, right? Every solar PV panel needs a battery to help store the energy that comes from it, right? Um, so just a lot of interesting, you know, batteries are everywhere, right? To your point. Um, and, you know, one of the places that I know we've just started talking about their application is in the world of microgrids, right? And as we envision sort of a new energy future, like what does, what does that look like? Um, one of the things we've been focusing in on a lot are, are microgrids. So, um, I'm not sure if that makes sense to you in terms of taking the conversation there, but, um, yeah, do you want to talk yeah, a little yeah. bit about, does that make sense? Okay. Um, yeah, let's, let's go for it. Let's, let's, okay. let's get microgrids. <laughs> All right. So do you, do you mind giving like your best shot at a, a, a short definition of like what a microgrid even is? I know that's, that's a tough one for me still too, but uh, so I'm yeah. going to cheat a little bit here. And <laughs> okay. I, I actually, before we were talking, I was thinking, you know, I don't necessarily know exactly what a, a good definition would be. So I decided to look it up. Um, well played, well played. <laughs> all right. So this is, this is just if you search microgrid definition on Google. Um, so you can do this at home if you want to, but this is what it says. It's a small network of electricity users with a local source of supply that is usually attached to a centralized national grid, but is able to function independently. Um, and I think that's really the key part is that it has that independent function. And so what there's a couple things that I think are really exciting about microgrids. Um, I think the first one that people maybe is, is sort of most accessible and, and less sort of theoretical is the resiliency aspect that if there's a blackout, your system doesn't go down. And so there are a number of examples around the country where microgrids are being adopted. 
And a lot of them are in airports where people really don't want the airport to stop functioning if there's a regional blackout. And so like JFK is going to be um, a microgrid. Uh, there's, a, there's an airport in Pittsburgh, I believe, that's a microgrid. And then for years, the U.S. military has been developing this um, these types of microgrids as well because they they don't want their bases to you know lose operation if the yeah. region, again if the regional grid goes down. So there's that aspect of it. But then the other aspect I think that's really exciting is that in order to have the grid this microgrid function independently of a larger grid, it's really helpful to have storage on site, and you need. You know, if you're using renewables to generate the energy, you need storage. And so this is a way to do this on a smaller scale rather than trying to overhaul the entire nation at once. You're kind of doing this piecemeal and it's, it's more accessible. And so it's, it's a great way to demonstrate the power of, you know, these technologies and that they really work and to reduce people's sort of anxiety around like, am I not going to have my power? It's like, it, it, it works. Yeah. Go look at the airport. Like you go to the airport and you have no idea that this is happening. And I, JFK's um, microgrid, I, I forget when, do you remember when it's supposed to go online? Have you read those things? I did. Yeah. So for anyone um, interested in learning more about microgrids, um, Daniel put me on to this newsletter called um, I think it's actually just called microgrid newsletter, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> um, but I'll, we can include a link to that in our, in the climate story from Daniel. Um, but I would definitely suggest that everyone, you know, dips their toes into the water with that. Um, but yeah, I think JFK within the next two or three years is hoping to assemble basically like a, a, a collection of, I think five or six connected microgrids my guess is that they do it based on the terminals so they have a microgrid per terminal and that they're all sort of intertwined into one network um, centrally so that's super cool one of the other examples i've also come across outside the newsletter um, are health centers um, especially in locations like puerto rico or um, other places where hurricanes are starting to become really prevalent um, because as soon as power outages happen, um, you know, you think about places where <laughs> like health centers, where like if energy goes out at a hospital, people are dying, you know, and yeah. there are stories from Puerto Rico over the last five or 10 years where every health center that had a microgrid based on collecting solar locally, um, they were able to actually support the entire community from a health perspective. So people would literally be rolling people down the street on their hospital beds to this one place because they had a microgrid set up. And to, to the resiliency standpoint, like they were able to be resilient against hurricanes, against storms. Um, and I think on top of that, it's also a really interesting way to challenge like who owns energy across the world. I know we can probably get into this a lot more um, and there's some seeds to be planted about some stuff we're working on, but um, most energy in the U S and across the world is owned by, but they're called investor owned utilities, right? So they're private companies that invest in energy generation and therefore those private companies own the energy, right? But microgrids have the ability to kind of challenge that in a way, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I think that that is a very exciting aspect of microgrids. 
And I, I think that's something that I don't totally know how it's going to work. Um, but I'm excited to see what happens because it'd be, yeah, it'd be really cool to sort of dismantle the, the status quo of how like things are paid for and, and how things function that will yeah, give people a little bit more freedom um, and flexibility in how they get their power. Yeah. Um, much more to come on all of that, but I think sort of going back to the batteries for a second um, in your wheelhouse, like every microgrid needs to have a, a battery system, right? That's, is that how you understand them? Yeah. Um, I mean, without you, there are a number of different technologies that you could potentially use to store the energy. So if you are using um, solar panels, for example, I think if we just focus on solar, it's simpler because, you know, the sun goes down at night and then there's a clear need for when you need some yeah. sort of other source of energy um, that's not you know, directly coming from the electricity that's being generated when the, the sun is shining. So, you, you, you know, you can store excess energy that is not being used by a home, for example, in the battery during the day. And then at night, you discharge that excess energy from the battery to keep running whatever power uh, you know, demands you have in your household. Another way of doing that would be to have some kind of generator where you just use a fuel, which we don't necessarily think about fuel as like a battery where it's a lot of stored potential energy. But I think you can think of it in the same way that that, that, that is what it is. It's a, it's a little, it's a pile of potential energy, either in the solid or liquid state. Um, and then another way to do that would be instead of using like gasoline or coal, you know, whatever sort of fuel that you can extract from the ground, you could also use something like hydrogen and a fuel cell. So if you had a, a compressed tank of hydrogen gas, you could, you know, when the sun isn't shining, you could run that overnight uh, with a fuel cell. And a fuel cell is just a way of converting. It's like an engine for a car, um, but it's a way of producing electricity from a chemical fuel source. Very cool. And still somewhat way over my head, but <laughs> um, yeah, sorry, I, I, I tried to. No, you. Know, if that's making sense, <laughs> you are a great translator, um, and I appreciate that. But I, yeah, I mean, I think you're exactly right. Like part of a lot of the simple microgrids that we see out in the world are mostly solar based, but then you can also think about ways to involve other types of clean energy generation and have it all flow into one battery or energy storage system or compressed fuel cell. Um, and then that can power a bunch of different activities um, without the need to rely on, you know, a main utility. Um, so definitely in a really interesting world that um, I'm just starting to learn more about, but um, a lot of that is because of you. So thank you. I think one of the challenges I hear um, when people are thinking about solar or um, electric vehicles or microgrids um, is that they take a lot of raw material to support, right? I mean, a new a new article just came out on Canary Media, um, which is a great other resource for um, climate change stories and different research. But 
they um, they reported that an electric vehicle takes six times the amount of raw materials like lithium or cobalt or copper um, to support that car versus a car that runs on gasoline, right? So there, there are a lot of different ways that like even people who are still invested in oil and gas are arguing, well, isn't this just a shift from one raw material to another, right? That we're still gonna have to extract um, from the earth in practices across the world that are very, um, you know, they're based in extraction in, in developing countries where, um, you know, I've been to places like Zambia where we're pulling a ton of copper out of the ground to support our iPhones, right? And so it's it's these interesting global supply chains that, um, you know, it, it's an interesting question, right? Because we need solar to, yeah. to accomplish this energy transition, but, you know, the raw materials that go into making solar or an electric vehicle, you know, still come out of the ground. So um, I know one of the things you're thinking about is how do you rethink that conversation about where those raw materials come from, right? Um, yeah. Can you tell me a little yeah. bit about that? Yeah, definitely. Um, so I think, uh, first of all, one key distinction to make between sort of the comparison of fossil fuels for that are being used in a car and, and sort of the overall energy that goes into a car is that <clears throat> for, you know, the car that you're making that runs on gasoline, all of the fuel you're putting into it over time, where when you have a car that has a battery, all that, all those materials stay there and you use them again and again and again. So, you know, it's a one-time thing for the, um, for the car when you are using gasoline but you get to use the materials over and over again. And then the other thing is that once you extract those minerals from the earth, um, you know, we can work on ways to improve recycling so that, that the energy cost that goes into getting those materials back is much, much, much lower than the original extraction process. And that's not to say that there isn't a lot of room for improvement on extraction. And that sort of is the next point. I think what we've talked about more is you know, if you want to, if you need these materials so that you don't have to constantly use a single use fuel like gasoline instead of a battery, which is, you know, many, many times putting the energy in and out. Um, it, it, it's good to think about improving our extraction methods. And so that's something that I'm really interested in is are there ways that we can, instead of getting lithium in particular, lithium is one of the ones that for electric vehicles and for yep. all lithium ion batteries is super, super important. Are there ways that instead of, you know, getting it from these uh, brines or salars, which are rich um, salt deposits, many of which are in, are in Chile. I think Chile has the vast majority or the largest yep. reserves in the world. I don't think they have the majority, but they, they have the largest reserves. Yep. Um, but in, in any case, the, the processes for extracting the lithium from these deposits is very environmentally uh, detrimental. It, it damages the environment in a lot of different ways. And it's also damaging for the local communities in terms of water usage. And there are a whole host of issues associated with the process of extraction. And so one idea that I've been thinking about a lot is, is there a way to extract lithium from something like the ocean or even other sort of places like uh, geothermal brines. Um, these are 
basically uh, water sources that are coming from deep within the earth that have a lot of minerals in the water. And if you can extract the lithium from something like that, you wouldn't necessarily have to dig a mine. The water comes to you and then you just need to have a selective extraction process. And that's very challenging. And we're not there yet in terms of a, um, a technology that is on the market that's doing this. But I think if we can get there, and I think we can get there, um, this will totally shift sort of the dynamic of the environmental impact of lithium in particular. And there are strategies for doing similar types of things with other minerals. Um, maybe not from the extraction side, but certainly from the recycling side. So I, I know it's had a lot yeah. of different things there, but. <laughs> uh, that, I think that that's so well said. Um, and I like the way you framed it too of, um, you know, there's sort of the front end challenge of where you get the lithium or where you get the raw materials. But then there's also the back end challenge of recycling those materials too. You can't recycle you can't recycle gasoline, right? So it's it's an it's a different um, collection of variables in the equation. Um, but it's something that's really important. I think also in that same Canary Media article, they predicted that by 2050 we're going to need to increase our lithium uh, volume that we have in the supply chain by 500, percent right? So we're going to have to figure out a way to get there. Um, and to do it in a just way um, is a it's a huge challenge. Um, so interested to see how that all continues to play out. Um, yeah. But I it's just a, a, a fun. Yeah, little, go ahead. Go ahead. This is a, a fun little like factoid about the lithium in the ocean versus on land. Yeah. Where, um, depending on like what the estimates are of the lithium reserves, there are different numbers that people throw around, but there's something like 16,000 times more lithium in the ocean than there is on land that we have access to, which is pretty crazy to think about. You know, it's like, I think it's something like um, 230 billion tons of lithium in the ocean. Um, so where we have like 14 million tons on land. So the yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty exciting to me to think about the possibility of using the ocean as this type of resource. And this wouldn't affect seawater yeah. in any appreciable way because we would be using so little of the lithium that it would not significantly affect the concentration. Um, and it wouldn't necessarily, it wouldn't affect seawater in any other ways. So this wouldn't be environmentally damaging really in any way. Well, that would make a huge dent <laughs> for sure. Um, I mean, it's, it's such a fascinating challenge. Um, and I, I think especially for, for folks that are more sort of on the global activist side, a bunch of folks that I met, you know, at COP27 or COP26 or even you know, anywhere in between, um, there's this, this question of how you build technologies in a way that is socially just from a global perspective. Um, and then also how you you shift the conversation from just being one based on like we can solve climate change through technology, right? Like, don't worry about it, guys. Like, scientists got it. <laughs> you know, like I don't you you literally brought that up to me last week. You're like, I, it's yeah. so weird because I feel like in a lot of ways people just think scientists are going to figure this out. And it's going to be some technology that changes everything and solves the issue or so 
I'm curious in your perspective as someone who's, you know, gone to school for chemistry and got his PhD in chemical engineering and is now working on battery technology. Like, how do you see that all playing together? Right. Because it, you know, you work at Lawrence, one of the other, sorry, I'm rambling at this point, but one of the other Mm -hmm. interesting developments that's happened recently is this nuclear fusion thing. Right. So, and that happened at a national lab. And people saw that and they said, oh, great. Like, here's a here's the solution, right? And if this works, then it can be, you know, a source of clean energy that powers the whole world. Um, but it's not as simple as that, right? It's it's a it's a small scientific breakthrough that has a long way to go before it actually has any impact in the world. And then how do you think about applying that in a socially just way? It's it's so many interesting. Um, variables, but yeah, I'm curious for for your thoughts on that, especially since you're one of those scientists. Yeah, um, uh, yeah, this is a. <laughs> I feel like it's a very complicated topic. It is. No, but um, so I I think I kind of go back and forth on this in terms of you know being an optimist and being really excited about the potential for science, but then also feeling like sometimes people have this, this view that, that we can sort of keep accelerating and, and our, our rate of technological development will just continue at this breakneck pace that it has been for the past, you know, 100 years or so. I mean, the amount of breakthroughs that happened and sort of the, the advances in science and technology, I think probably for our grandparents were some of the most extreme, you know, thinking about Mm-hmm. you know, growing up before TVs existed and then, you know, televisions were invented. People went to space, <laughs> the internet became a thing. And yeah. then suddenly everyone had not just the internet, but access to the internet in your pocket at any time that you want anywhere, pretty much anywhere in the world. And, and that's, you know, I think it's easy to think that that's just going to keep going but there are limitations to what we can do and certain laws of physics dictate (laughs) what's possible. Um, And so I think it's not necessarily fair to assume that we'll just have batteries that are cheaper than gasoline and will work miraculously. I think there is sort of a reality that that may not be possible. and I, I don't want to be a Debbie Downer, but, but I, I just think that, yeah, there are certain there, there are certain physical limitations that we will eventually come up against. And or things like fusion, maybe that will eventually work. I don't know. I definitely don't think it will be anytime soon. And so I think it's incumbent upon all of us to take action with what we can do now and work with the technologies that we have and maybe pay a little bit more for them because it's important to start doing this now if we want to preserve the places that we love and the spaces that we enjoy seeing and make sure that people around the world have an equal chance at being able to live in their environment. And yeah, yeah. Just all, yeah. The, all the sort of things that people that drive people in these areas. <laughs> Well, I, I'm an optimist because we have people like you working on some of these solutions. Um, and I also think to your point, it's not fair to put 
all of the responsibility on the national labs and the scientists. I think a lot of what I enjoy about our conversations, um, you know, they center at this critical meeting point between how do you think about innovation and, you know, not going back to the stone age to solve this problem, right? You know, we yeah. can't just stop all activity in the world overnight. You know, how, how, where does where does that meet between rethinking how our society works, you know, from a systems level of, you know, when you think about global capitalism and consumption, you know, to your point, can that continue exactly how it's been growing and then be counteracted by some technological breakthrough that enables that to work exactly how it's been going? Or is it some change in mindset around how how our world interacts with each other, you know, what kind of actions we're taking, and then continuing to work on the technology side, right? And figuring yeah. out how those things play together in the reinvention of a new set of systems with increased technology capacity. Um, it's, it's, once again, the puzzle is really complex. <laughs> it's, you know, that's one, of, that's why it's the greatest challenge of our time. But um, <clears throat> anyway, that, that's sort of how my mind is thinking about it. It's, you know, we need people like you working on these solutions, and then we need to figure out how we apply them in a way that is global. Um, but it also shakes things up from just the patterns that we've been developing as a, as a world um, over the last two decades or the last two centuries, as you talked about. But um, yeah, and I think that's something that has been really exciting for me about partnering with you and getting to see sort of see your vision and what you're building with Brim. Um, I, I think that the really exciting part is like getting communities involved in this and and leveraging the creativity of like so many people who don't necessarily work and think in the same way that people like myself do um like i i, I remember there was one time when i was hanging out with another person from spsa so shout out to spsa again andre where we were in the south bronx um, at a community garden and this baby hawk like fell off of a air conditioner where it was nesting and this is like the, one of the craziest days of my life. Um, we, we took this hawk by canoe to a falconry show that was up like up the river in, in like northern Manhattan. And we timed it and it just worked out perfectly that the tides were timed so that we could just like ride the tide up the Harlem River in canoes with this falcon in a crate, give it to a falconer who could take care of it. And then we went back. But just like the creativity of thinking about just like, I never would have thought to do that. And that seemed totally crazy, but I feel like people who work in community gardens, you know, people are just really creative and coming up with different ways to deal with problems. And I think being able to tap into that is, is what this energy crisis needs. I think just getting people thinking in different ways and just getting a lot of people thinking about it is what's going to be helpful and also uh, just to be a little bit more optimistic than I was before there's a lot of really cool stuff that's happening yeah. um, at the national labs and in science and we may not be able to solve everything but we're we're, we're working on a bunch of cool stuff cool. <laughs> I don't want to be too pessimistic yeah well that's good to know thanks <laughs> <laughs>
But I, I think I think you I, that's a great point, I think, to end on here, Daniel. And um, this will, you know, I'm excited because we get to plant a seed quickly here for a project that we're working on together um, with some other folks that are a part of the BRIM Global Working Group. But um, more to come on that. But I think the the underlying theme of some of these projects we're working on is that they are community based, but they're also scalable. Right. And I think that that's one of the key challenges when people think about, you know, the community garden space and people say, great, but that's one garden in one town, one city. You know, that's not going to do anything. But if those types of movements are connected and they start to learn from each other and start actually collaborating together and start building on each other, then that can be scaled globally. Right. So um, look out for some more things from us, um, specifically within the community, energy, food, land and water spaces, um, because we we think that that's the way to go in terms of how we build solutions. But then, you know, not just that, it's also how we how we can get them into the rest of the world um, and learn from folks in different parts of the world as well. It's not just people in New York coming up with solutions and then trying to do them everywhere else. It's you know, how can that be a, a really even, um, you know, method of exchange of information and, and knowledge? So anyway, yeah. well said. <laughs> it's been awesome to work with you, Daniel, and um, to reconnect on this shared passion. Sure. It's been so fun. Um, what can people do to to engage with your work? I think that's always a fun place to leave us. Um, you know, what kind of stuff do you want people to know about? Um, how can people get in touch with you? And uh, maybe we can we can lead people there. Is, is this a good time for me to have a social media presence? Should I establish one? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, start one now. Um, yeah, so I'm at uh, LBNL, Lawrence Berkeley National Lab. There, I think there's a, a page of, of people who... Um, or have some expertise in this area of, of energy storage. So I my name is up there along with many other people who have been in the field far longer than I have. So they're excellent resources to reach out to. Um, and I think, you know, if, if you're living in an area where you have the opportunity to communicate with your energy provider, um, a lot of times it's worth it investigating whether or not you can ask for 100% renewables. And this is something that individuals can do to really push the market towards what we want. And you pay, you will pay slightly higher rates. So this is something that I just recently did out here in Oakland. Um, you just contact your service provider. Um, and I would first just do an internet search to see if it's possible. Um, but in a lot of places, there is, there are, you do have a choice in terms of what type of energy you're getting. And that doesn't mean that 100% of the time, all of the energy that you're getting is coming from renewables, because that isn't necessarily possible yet. But what it does mean is that they have to hit certain milestones of how much of their energy is being generated from renewables. And so if more people are buying into that, it will incentivize them to build more infrastructure. And so it's a it's a it's one of the few market levers that in our current like large regional grid based system, uh, you know, it's the leverage that we have to make that change. So I'll I'll, I'll leave it with that, that that's something people can look into. Love it. 
All right, Daniel, well, thank you so much for your time, um, for your brain power, and uh, super excited to to share more about your work and um, you know everything that that we're starting to work on this year together. It's going to be a lot of fun. So uh, appreciate yeah. your time. Yeah, thank you, man. Really appreciate everything you're doing. It's been awesome. Cool. Talk to you soon. See ya. this far thank you so much for listening and i hope you enjoyed look out for our next episode two weeks from today with kavindu adiriwira from sri lanka i hope everyone has a great rest of the week weekend and we'll see you soon